Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Respublica Politics podcast. Your host today is Nadia Goluchoglu and I am one of the editors focusing on both political and current affairs as well as the art and culture section. Today I will be interviewing a special guest, the former US ambassador to Mozambique, Douglas Griffith. I hope you will find this interview interesting. Let's begin. Good afternoon, Honorable Ambassador Griffiths. I am honored to interview you today for Irrespublica Politics to feature in our podcast. Before we begin, I would like to say a few words about your career and current occupations. You joined the US Foreign Service in 1988 and served in Quebec City, Canada, Lisbon, Portugal, and Maputo, Mozambique. Specializing in economic development, you also served as First Secretary of Economic Affairs in Rabat, Morocco, and as Councillor for International Economic Affairs as part of the US mission in Geneva. Working on five continents, your most recent assignment was as the Deputy Permanent Representative at the US mission in the United Nations in Geneva, where you worked in the promotion of global health and innovation and the protection of the rights of refugees and human rights globally. You are now president of the Oak Foundation USA, which provides grants to nonprofit organizations around the world to address issues of global social and environmental concerns, especially those that have an impact on the life of the disadvantaged. I would now like to begin this interview by asking you a few questions about Mozambique and Africa in general. Sure. Um, when talking about the development of Mozambique and the US mission there, um, do you believe that American money was in the whole rather well spent? How do you describe it? So I, I do. Um, and a significant um, percentage of US government um, resources at the time that I was there was dedicated to global public health especially the PEPFAR program, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. And that is by far the most successful foreign assistance program that no one has ever heard of. Um, it had wide bipartisan support. It was started by um, George W. Bush. Barack Obama continued to invest heavily in it, in, in it and it continues to have broad support. Um, PEPFAR has really played a significant role in controlling the epidemic and eventually ending the epidemic. Um, we have reached epidemic control in almost all countries and epidemic control basically means that rates are falling. Mm -hmm. um, and in Mozambique, um, it was extraordinarily rewarding to see. Um, but you know, while I was there, we managed to provide antiretroviral treatments to everyone in the country, which is an extraordinary feat in a country as large as Mozambique. Um, so Mozambique is basically, the coast of Mozambique is the same size as the West Coast of the United States. So I think people don't really recognize that, you know, Maputo is way down in the Southern bit and the North is really quite far away. Um, you Just know, to compare, sorry. I noticed that Mozambique was about the size of Turkey, which is yes. like, for people in Europe is quite comparable and quite huge as well. So yeah, I was really surprised when I found this. No, geographically, it's an enormous country. And I think that, you know, having the capital really at the at one corner mm -hmm. does make some challenges in terms of ensuring that, um, you know, that there is um, kind of unity and a focus on, on the entire country. But on, mm -hmm. you know, the global health and that, you know, while the U.S. funding was really focused on HIV AIDS, that strengthens the entire health system and it provides a platform 
for improving indicators um, across the health spectrum. And, you know, you asked a question earlier about um, some of the, you know, human development indicators in Mozambique. And you will see that on health, it really has been a very positive trajectory uh, in terms of um, improving maternal child health, improving child survivor survival rates, um, et cetera. But, you know, on, on HIV AIDS, basically everyone in the country had access to it. Um, there was a broad agreement on sort of the universality of treatment and the focus on what we often call key populations, groups or people that, that are most vulnerable to <coughs> HIV AIDS. And often those are people sort of outside of mainstream society or more marginalized. And so I think that's extraordinarily important also from a development perspective of um, bringing marginalized people into the public health um, care space, which can really provide a lot of other openings. Mm -hmm. Did you feel that maybe some ethnic minorities in Mozambique were probably affected by HIV AIDS or was it just the general population? Yeah, um, I don't think I've seen data on. So, you know, Mozambique is mostly north-south and most mm -hmm. of the ethnic groups tend to be populated east-west, often among river valleys. Mm -hmm. um, and they often are connected to the more the insular countries, you know, those countries that don't have a border. So, you know, there wasn't a huge differential. I mean, obviously rural-urban, there was a difference, but the epidemic tended to be concentrated in urban areas. Um, it tended to be much less in the north, which, you know, is furthest from the capital. So, you know, one might expect that the disease might be more prevalent in the far north or in other areas further away from the cities, but that's not the way that the disease presented itself in Mozambique. It was really mostly urban areas along transit corridors. Um, and so that's where we really focused our investments. I was wondering, um, because you, you mentioned that U.S. money was U.S. funds were mostly focusing on health. And I've noticed that there is also some economic investment from China in Mozambique, especially and in Africa in general. Right. But China focuses more on infrastructure rather than health. So I was wondering what kind of um, policy did the US have and why focusing on health and not infrastructure, for example? Um, you know, I, I, I don't, generally in the US, development assistance is not linked to economic interests. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, those, there are always exceptions people can come up with, but generally that's not the case. Generally our um, development assistance is really focused on uh, need, mm -hmm. on um, sort of what are the priorities because you know, every, every country in development assistance should not be doing everything, right? Um, there, everyone has comparative advantages. Um, there are um, you know, different relationships in different countries, whereas you know, perhaps if a country um, has a, a similar legal system, then a country might you know, want to focus more on, on legal assistance. The United States made a decision to really focus on global public health, especially on PEPFAR, especially on HIV AIDS, but, you know, t tuberculosis, malaria, and other things. So that's what 
um, happened is we, uh, the, the United States co- uh, Congress allocated a great deal of funding for public health. So those resources were available. Um, Mozambique was a target country and that they had relatively high infection rates. They had a government that was very eager to work with us, um, a, a government that was interested in investing in, in the population. We also had, and I was going to say this earlier, something called the Millennium Challenge Corporation, MCC, mm-hmm. which is another significant um, uh, development assistance program. Mozambique was an MCC compact country. I, um, I think we have a second one with them now. That often has a lot of infrastructure spending. So while I was there, we were very in, um, heavily investing in that compact. It was about $500 million. And there were a lot. there was a lot of road construction um, mm-hmm. Dam construction. Um, uh, one of my favorite projects, which was land tenure, which is another one of these very boring issues that has a huge impact on people's lives. And um, you know, some of the land tenure um, projects were very successful in helping people, especially in peri-urban areas, mm-hmm. um, gain access to titles for their property, which has an enormous positive externalities, you know, spillover effects that people are then able to. Um, get loans for agricultural implements for you know other things, and we really focused on on helping women um, get access to land title. Yes, because I also while I was researching about Mozambique, I also noticed that it was mostly subsistence farming as well. And so, how did the U.S. or rather your program help into changing this? Well, I don't know about changing that. I mean, supporting that sector, I think, mm-hmm. is the um, uh, because right. land is an extraordinarily complicated issue, and especially in a in a place like Mozambique that had a colonial um, history, and yeah. then a history of some um, collectivization where the state took. Um, um, so, control of land, et cetera. So we did have a lot of support on, on agricultural issues. Um, while I was there, one of the focus areas was on transportation corridors with the, the thinking being that if you invest in um, helping small scale farmers gain access to markets, which is really easy along these corridors, it'll have a very positive impact. Um, and we also worked on high nutritional value foods which, um, you know, food is very cultural. It's very difficult. You have to be very careful when you do these sorts of things. But, you know, for example, the kind of sweet potatoes that were grown in Mozambique were very poor quality. And so we had a big program to improve, um, to introduce orange sweet potatoes. And it was, they were all native varieties, but they just weren't very popular. Um, But then also like pulses, you know, beans and, and other things that aren't necessarily... Um, part of the Mozambican diet that to try to promote more use of that and that, um, um, you know, the mealy meal, I can't think what it's called in English right now, um, cassava, yeah, you know, which is very cassava. low nutrition. Um, it's the exact same word in English. Yeah, that, that it's a, um, that's sort of like the, the protection food, the backup food for drought, mm-hmm. but it has kind of taken over um because it does farm quite easily mm-hmm. okay. no i'm yeah i looked into farming but also recently i i found that they well the government found an offshore um oil like yes resources there and um i well the the u.s also has maybe some interest in portugal as well here 
um, because of they deploy military there. Well, rather for training the the local population, like. And um, I was wondering um, how, what hopes do you have for the country in terms of export this natural resource, and yeah. how much is actually expected to trickle down to the population to help them develop. So Mozambique does have enormous natural gas reserves. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're in the far north of the country. And um, right now, with changing market conditions and the instability in the far north, I'm not sure how um, um, transformational that might be. Um, as I said earlier, it's been a long time since I left Mozambique. I'm not at all aware of, of what's going on. Um, and, and also, you know, the markets have just changed dramatically. There was a big shift, um, especially with natural gas, with all the fracking that was taking place in North America that, um, transformed the natural gas market. And then now, um, you know, people are recognizing that natural gas is not a clean energy solution, um, and that it doesn't. Um, make a lot of sense to be investing in a lot of um, expensive um, natural gas structures, pipelines, um, pumping stations, et cetera, that very well could be orphaned by the dramatic improvements in um, solar and wind power. So while I was in in, in, in uh, Mozambique, and I'm sure it continues today, we also had a significant renewables um, um, assistance plan where we are hoping to help rural electrification based on renewable energy. Because again, it just doesn't make sense to build power lines from you know 120 years ago when one has the the ability to have local yeah. sources of, of renewable energy. That would be just right there. And it's funny you mention. Um, solar and um, wind power because I thought Mozambique had quite a few rivers that could be developed for hydroelectrical power. And I think there is also the the largest, one of the largest um, artificial lakes. Yes. Um, So you've done your research. The Kohorabasa Dam is one of the largest hydroelectric um, stations in in Africa. it was a complicated historical legacy where the, the power lines from Kohorabasa really go to South Africa, mm-hmm. not to parts of Mozambique. So most of the power actually goes to South Africa and then is shipped over to Maputo. Uh, so it's complicated. Um, and you know, soul, uh, sorry, hydro, um, you know, in Switzerland, for example, where I now live, it's a very significant portion of, um, of power generation. In the canton of Geneva, where I live, basically all of the electricity is renewable, and you have options to um, choose your renewable, which many people are now doing to not be reliant on hydro. Um, you know, that's what we've done in our household. We only do solar and wind. It's about, I think, 30 or 40% more expensive, but it's a, it's a choice we make because, you know, hydro has its challenges too of, of impact on landscapes, impact on, on, on fish. And then in Southern Africa, 
Gorabasa, you know, there, there have been some enormous droughts. There is significant siltation. Um, and, and Mozambique is very flat. Mm-hmm. So it's not really a very um, propitious environment for hydro. Um, there are big rivers going through, but they tend to be very flat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's the, the end and they go towards the sea. So it's okay. Right. Not the valley. Exactly. Mm-hmm. There, aren't, there aren't big rushing, valley, r- rushing rivers co- coursing through valleys. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it does make sense for um, wind power then and solar, I, I suppose. Um, I'm, I'm very careful about the time, so maybe can we focus on your, uh, well, your position as president of the O Foundation? Mm-hmm. Um, how has the transition to impact investment affected your perception of aid and economic development? How is the transition to? Impact investment, sorry. Well, we really don't do impact investment. We, we are grant makers. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Um, they provide grants to organizations. We don't invest in them. Um, mm-hmm. So the transition has been um, I, I, delightful, but um, you know, it's been easy and that they're not particularly different worlds. And mm-hmm. the way that I always approached, um, you know, my work as a diplomat was very much as a rights-based approach. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the United States was um, funded, f- founded on, on individual liberties and, you know, with really enumerated rights that every individual held. Um, and so that is very much our approach in Oak Foundation. We believe that everyone has inherent dignity and that we are blessed with resources that we can use to help people achieve um, um, their rights. Um, and especially, I cut you off when you were making the introduction earlier about you know, those most vulnerable, those furthest from opportunities. So the overall ethos has been very, very similar. Um, it's nice to, um, you know, when you work in government, um, you're accountable to your public for every dollar you spend. And so that means that often um, there's an unwillingness to take risk. Um, there's a very heavy administrative burden that you require partners to account for you know, every centime um, Whereas we have much more, you know, risk-taking capacity. It's much more of a partnership that once we make our grants, and I'm very passionate about this issue of, um, we call it core grant making or flexible project grants. Um, all too often, donors, and those are both bilateral government donors and a lot of foundations, mm-hmm. provide project grant money. You know, asking an organization to perform a task or to make an achievement on your behalf. Whereas, you know, we very much believe that the um, grantee organizations are the knowledge holders. They're the ones who know what is the highest and best purpose of the resources. And so, um, you know, I think it's just much better donor practice to provide core grants over a significant portion of times. We generally provide three-year grants. We're trying to go more towards eight, five-year grants um, to allow um, the partners to really carry the work forward. Mm-hmm. And which project would you say you are particularly proud of that made a difference? Oh, that's like asking which child I prefer better. Um, <laughs> so I mean, it can be numerous ones. <laughs> I, I, yeah, you don't, you don't have enough time. So, you know, we're a family foundation. So each of the family members um, kind of um, has program areas that they're most passionate about. And so that's why we have such 
you know, diverse um, projects. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give, I mean, I, I think there are so many and they're so diverse, but this one is out of the special interest program, which means that we don't have an official program about it. it's not human rights or women's rights, but um, we became acquainted with an organization called Miracle Feet and Miracle Feet works to correct clubfoot. So clubfoot is when, you know, the feet aren't aligned. They're sort of like this. Um, and obviously in, in wealthy countries, the, this is identified very early. Um, the child has treatment and the child walks normally. And so um, Miracle Foot worked um, with venture capitalists in, um, especially in, in Stanford, California, to design very inexpensive braces. What they do is... Traditionally, often you would break the child's leg, which is obviously in countries with weaker health systems is not an ideal situation. So this just, there are different braces that eventually turn the child's foot progressively. And so Miracle Foot is, um, we've been supporting them for about nine years now. They have provided treatment to over 70,000 kids and 99% of them can run. Wow. And it's just such a you know, low-touch, delightful story. And they work through local health systems. They're not like creating parallel systems or anything else. But it's just the kind of thing that, um, you know, really um, with relatively low investment provides children with a different life. And then, like, there are all sorts of other positive things because when children have physically physical handicaps, they're often much more susceptible to um, sexual and exploitation and everything else. So just, you know, it's such a beautiful story. Um, but I, I come across them almost every day because I actually review every grant that we make and we make about 370 grants a year. And I am just absolutely, um, you know, empowered by um, what happens. And I'll, I'll talk about one other one that I really love um, because it's in Mozambique. Um, I got to know the, um, uh, a, a gentleman named Greg Carr, who is a philanthropist in his own right, and has been working on Gorongosa National Park. And Gorongosa National Park is one of the most spectacular ecosystems in the world. Um, it's um, a sort of, um, it's in the center of the country. And during the very long Mozambican Civil War, it was devastated. Most of the um, fauna was exterminated and it has recovered spectacularly. But the key to recovery in parks, in my experience, and sort of the way that we work is we work on human landscapes. We don't work in um, closed zoos. Mm. And, and that's what Gorongosa has done. While it is a national park and it is a protected space, they have invested, they invest far more money in the communities around Gorongosa than in the park itself. And they've really focused on um, on women's empowerment and girls' education and girls' clubs. They're working on um, you know coffee growing to help reforestation, and um, and that's how I actually got to know Oak, Oak Foundation through our joint collaboration in Gorongosa National Park. And it's just extraordinary what um, has been achieved. And almost everyone working in the park is Mozambican, and they actually created a master's degree program where Mozambicans can. Um, get master's degrees in the park and you know, that'll be the next generation of, of leaders. That's amazing because providing grants to, um, to the country or to projects to, to develop something rather than just giving money and uh, 
like as you said, as you said for miracle foods, for example, it, it takes into account the local uh, healthcare system rather than creating something totally different, which right. would be incompatible. And right. this is what's something I find really impressive as well from you know, you made a comment in in um, uh, in the questions you sent. I'm sorry we don't have more time. Um, that I, I think bears a quick mention before I jump off, and that was on the Istanbul co- um, Convention. I'm really glad that you highlighted that. Um, I was too. <laughs> it, it is, um, you know, our, our women's issue programs tries to support women's funds all over the world, and and our idea is um, that our money goes to this group of, of women's funds um, who then decide what's used. We're not being directive, right? We're not saying this is the work you should do. We're mm-hmm. saying, you know, you are a collection of feminist organizations in, um, in Moldova. We trust you to reflect your knowledge of the local situation to move forward. Um, it has been very distressful to see, I think um, this process has been accelerating over the past decade, how more autocratic leaders have um, exploited women's and children's issues to um, um, gain or maintain power. And I think that the demonization of the Istanbul Convention is part of that. Um, you know, the Istanbul Convention is not a scary thing. It is what I think most everyone believes in. Um, it really is. It doesn't create any new rights. It really is the manifestation of existing universal human rights that we've sort of advanced for the past 50 years. And the fact that some of those issues are now in question in some countries is really distressing. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm really glad that you focused on that. And it's something that um, you know, I'm, I'm deeply concerned about. Yeah, and um, well, also especially since um, when it when it was implemented ten years ago, Turkey was the first country to boast about how proud they were to be one of the first leading countries in, especially Muslim countries, to to grant those basic human rights or women's rights, rather. And it's- no, and some countries in Southeast Europe um, are have backed away from it. Um, it it's really distressing. I suppose this is the end of our interview together. Uh, Thank you so much for your time and I wish you luck and success in your future endeavors. If you like this format, please make sure you stay tuned for our future episodes and interviews brought to you by Respublica Politics. Thank you and see you soon.